You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. On the weekly Parsha. With this week's Torah portion, we begin Sefer Vayikra, the book of Leviticus, a Latinized version of the rabbinic designation Torah Kohanim, the priestly law or teaching. And if we were looking for a seamless follow-up to the finale of Sefer Shemot, with the finishing touches on the Mishkan and the priests poised to do their work, the Torah text does not disappoint us. In Vayikra, the reader is immediately plunged into a painstakingly detailed account of the sacrificial order, all orchestrated and conducted by the priests, the Kohanim. We are introduced to both animal and grain offerings and their various subcategories. The burnt sacrifice, the voluntary olah in chapter one, the five varieties of the meal offering, the mincha in chapter two, followed by the peace offering, the shlamim, shared by the three main protagonists, the penitent, the priest, and the altar, sin offerings, the chatas, for unintentional transgressions, and other sacrifices as well. Despite the difficulty that modern man, secular and let's not kid ourselves, even religious man, may have with the notion of animal sacrifice, Vyikra occupies a kind of pride of place in Jewish tradition, a cherished centrality in Jewish thought and theology. Let me give you three brief examples. Structurally speaking, Vayikra is literally the centerpiece of the Torah, the anchor, if you will, as the middle book of the five books of Moses. Second, Rabbi David Svi Hoffman, the great rabbi and scholar in 20th century Berlin, says in the introduction to his commentary on Vayikra that Christians generally begin the study of the Hebrew Bible with the book of Genesis, with the creation story, with the fall, of course, with the election of Israel and its Christological prefiguring of Christ in the rest of the New, in the rest of the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Jews, however, Rabbi Hoffman goes on to say, begin their traditional study of the Bible with the book of Vayikra, with Sefer Vayikra Leviticus. Why? He quotes a rabbinic passage that says, Yavo tahorim vayasok bitaros, that the pure ones should go and deal with pure things, pure concepts. In other words, the Tinoko Chilbeit Rabban, the little school children from time immemorial in the Jewish Cheder, began with the book of Vayikra, with Sefer Vayikra, because you take pure school children and you give them the purest, the laws of purity of the sacrificial order, which on the one level doesn't seem pure. There's a lot of blood and grisly details, as we know. But yet, that is the tradition that Jewish school children school tri- children begin their study of the Bible with Vayikra. And finally, we know that prayer as we know it today is a derivation of the sacrificial order. A dominant tradition within the Talmud, within the rabbinic mindset, is that the tefillot are connected the karbanot, that our prayers are in accord with or because of the structure of the daily sacrifices. And yet, these sacrifices seem so alien to the modern mind. What should the modern mind, unapologetic and with the power of tradition behind it, think about Karbanot and really think about Sefer Vayikra as a whole? 
I want to share a perhaps unlikely source that I think gets at the root of this. And that is the great C.S. Lewis, great Christian apologist, writer of imaginative fiction, university don at both Oxford and then Cambridge. He wrote many works over his decades-long commitment to the English word, but his last fictional work was, by his lights, his best creative work. And that's a little-known book called Till We Have Faces, A Myth Retold. This is really a retelling of the classical myth of Cupid and Psyche, which apparently haunted Lewis since his undergraduate days in Oxford. The story, however, is now set in the land of Gloam, a fictional land which, in Lewis's own words, is a little barbarous state on the borders of the Hellenistic world with Greek culture just beginning to affect it. The exact timing of the myth retold is unclear, but the events taking place are somewhere between the death of Socrates in 399 before the Common Era and the very beginning of the Common Era. Oruel, the oldest of the king's three daughters and the main protagonist, narrates a bitter tale of jealousy, possession, and accusation against the gods. Her pain is chiefly the product of an overprotective love for her half-sister, the pure and beautiful Psyche, who is sacrificed to the tribal god Ungit, a, and I quote, black stone without head or hands or face, and a very great goddess. This is after the people of Gloam attribute divine-like qualities to Psyche. The Greek tutor to the royal family, derisively nicknamed the Fox by King Trome, says Ungit is the same whom the Greeks call Aphrodite in this syncretistic world of the, the Mediterranean. And Lewis lets the reader see the virtues and vices of the pagan celebration of blood, thick and dark, over against the rationalism, thin and clear, of the fox's philosophy. This inner polemic, which takes place between fo the fox, the stoic student of philosophy and the Socratic method, and this beak-nosed, ugly priest, hunched-over priest of Ungit, comes to a head in the following dialogue. And listen carefully. Holy places are dark places. It is life and strength, not knowledge and words, that we get in them. Holy wisdom is not clear and thin like water, but thick and dark like blood. Holy wisdom is not clear and thin like water, but thick and dark like blood. When I first read this passage, my natural inclination was to attribute it to essentially a proto-Christianity or a, a kind of uh, high church Anglican devotion to the Eucharist, to the blood and the body. And it didn't seem very connected to, to Judaism. But thinking about Sefer Vayikra and thinking about what we've just discussed, the centrality of, of the sacrificial order... I, I lingered a little longer on this passage from Lewis, and I finally came across an incredible teaching from the great Michael Wishagrod, who is sadly one of, still remains a, a fairly neglected figure in Jewish thought, although by my lights is one of the most original Jewish theologians of this past century. Uh, I, I recommend that, that you read The Body of Faith, which is his magnum opus, God and the people Israel. And there he begins with a kind of a natural history 
of human reason. One might even call it a kind of a phenomenology of human reason. And he begins the book with these provocatively simple words. Man is a being who prefers light over darkness. And he goes on to suggest that man evolved over time to see a more illuminated world through human reason. And that each civilization has certain critical points at which particularly important breakthroughs to this light occur. And he says in particular that in Western civilization, one of these certainly took place when in the Platonic Dialogues, Socrates asked for definitions of concepts instead of accepting examples as definitions. Compared to the clarity of definitions, examples remain in the dark. They remain in the dark because examples are tied to contingencies. They're tied to the here and now, to what is in the world of becoming and not in the world of being. And that was the great contribution to the West of Greek civilization. And that was the prize of of Western rationality. But Israel, the people Israel, Wishagrad suggests, does not arrogate to itself the right to hail the Bible before the tribunal of reason. But it also does not abrogate the human right to ask questions without which man abdicates his humanity. What Wishagrad is trying to do here is to suggest that Judaism requires that we hold two almost contradictory impulses in our minds and hearts at the same time. On the one hand, light and reason propels us to ask questions, to get to the heart of the matter, to get to the universal, to get to the clear, to get to being. But we also have to have a radical humility in our reason, to know that we do not know the core of reality. We can never know God's mind and we can never know his purpose in history. And therefore, the reason of Israel, according to Wishagrad, is therefore a dark reason, a reason that remains entangled in the dark soil in which the roots of reason must remain implanted if it is not to drift off into the atmosphere. The tendency of the spirit is to rise away from the earth toward a more ethereal environment. And from this passage, Wishagrad, in, in a span of just a few pages, takes us to the question of sacrifice. And again, it's counterintuitive. Sacrifice, animal sacrifice, becomes the bulwark, becomes the foundation of his Jewish theology. But just like Sefer Vayikra occupies the central place in our Jewish thought traditionally, Wishagrad, as a great modern thinker, suggests that we need to look to sacrifice again. Because sacrifice, he says, is not merely an idea, but it's an act. Prayer and repentance are ideas. They're contemplative actions of the heart rather than the body. For this reason, rationalists of all times have been delighted by the termination of the sacrifices. And perhaps he's already alluding to Maimonides, who has ambiguous and ambivalent views of the sacrifices. For them, the rationalists, the service of the heart, the avodah shebalev, is self-evidently more appropriate for communication between rational men and their rational God than the bloodbaths of a temple slaughterhouse, whose atmosphere must have been quite different from that of the seminar room or the house of study, the Beit Midrash of rabbinic Judaism. Rabbinic, non-temple Judaism was therefore, however unintentionally, an early form of rationalized Judaism. And yet, the darkness of the sacrificial order must not be ignored. In sacrifice, man alleviates the darkness of his situation. How does he do that, Wishagrad suggests? Because sacrificial Judaism brings the truth of human existence in its totality into the temple. 
It does not leave it outside its portals. It does not reserve sacred ground only for silent worship. Instead, the brooding, bleeding, dying animal is brought and shown to God. This is what our fate is. And he goes on to say, it is not so much that, as is usually said, that we deserve the fate of the dying animal, a kind of transference, and that we have been permitted to escape this fate through the animal. It is rather that our fate and the animals are the same because its end awaits us, since our eyes, too, will soon gaze as blindly as his and be fixated in deathly attention on what only the dead seem to see and never the living, the totality of life in all its fullness and its lightness and its dark. In the temple, therefore, it is man who stands before God, not man as he would like to be or as he hopes he will be, but as he truly is now in the realization that he is the object that is his body and that his blood will soon enough flow from his body as well. Enlightened religion recoils with horror from the thought of sacrifice, preferring a spotless house of worship filled with organ music and and exquisitely polite behavior. The price paid for such decorum is that the worshiper must leave the most problematic part of his self outside the temple to reclaim it when the service is over and to live with it unencumbered by sanctification. Religion ought not to demand such a dismemberment of man. And so Wishagrad turns it on its head. The sacrificial order, instead of, of making us more primitive and more brutish and more bloody, it makes us more full and more capacious by including the totality of the human being, our light and our darkness. And that is what the sacrifices could do. And maybe that is why it is the little school children, the Tinoko Chilbait Rabban, that study Vayikra, perhaps acting out in their own way that ultimate sacrifice of the child man, Yitzchak, Isaac, in that most famous sacrifice in all of the Bible. Shabbat Shalom. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 